Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Daniel Parris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have as my guest Bjorn Lomborg, director of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, an international think tank. Uh, Bjorn's new book is called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. It just came out from basic books. Uh, Bjorn, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, Daniel. It's great to be here. So I, I was quite intrigued by uh, the title and the implications of your book. I, I work in investments, and my my day job is, in effect, to <laughs> forecast the future and then to create models about future outcomes. And uh, at the same time, over the last several years, ESG investing, I'm sure you're familiar with that environmental, social, and governance investing, which is very uh, prominent in Europe and is increasingly prominent in the United States, has entered the narrative of investing, and it, it uh, directs a portion of that uh, forecasting about the future into very specific questions about environmental and social governance choices that we make and, uh, and their implications. So when I, I saw your book, uh, which in effect tries to uh, put some meat around the the very high-profile issue of um, forecasting environmental outcomes and the the investments, it may be my term and maybe not so much your, uh, your term, but the investments around environmental policy, I was very much intrigued. So thank you for being on the show. Can you, can you describe kind of as an overview level how you got to this, where you wanted to do a public policy analysis of something that is uh, of, of basically of environmental policy? Thank you. Yes, Daniel, I I can. That that's what I wrote a book on. Uh, but actually, I think it's even more interesting what you're talking about with the ESG, uh, because uh, I really came to this conversation uh, in a somewhat roundabout way. Uh, because my goal and the goal of my think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus, we work with more than three hundred of the world's top economists and seven Nobel laureates to try to find out where can you spend a dollar and do the most good. Now, it's not probably the investment question of where can you spend a dollar and make the most money, but it's the question of saying, if you will, sort of effective altruism or those kinds of uh, ideas to say where can an extra philanthropic dollar be spent or a government dollar to help the world the most. And obviously, one of those, uh, one of those very central focuses is on climate. And so let's just get it very clear. Climate is a real man-made problem, and it will create a significant problem towards the end of the century. So this is a real problem. The point that I try to make throughout the book is that we have dramatically exaggerated the threat. A lot of people, so about half the world's population now believes that it's likely global warming will lead to the extinction of the human race. Whereas the UN climate panel indicates that by the end of the century, the cost of climate change will be equivalent to, say, 3.6%. I'm sure we'll get back to that. 3.6% reduction in GDP. So to put it very bluntly, because they also expect each one of us will be, on average, 3.5 times richer by the end of the century, the UN is essentially saying instead of being 3.5 times richer, we'll only be 3.34 times richer, which of course is a problem, but not the end of the world. And that has implications because we need to think about how do we focus on climate and do so smartly. And also, of course, remember all the other things. So hence the subtitle, you know, it hurts the poor and it actually fails to fix the planet. Much of what we do costs lots, does very little to help with climate, and often takes away attention from all the other challenges that we also need to fix. So let's let's just stop there and kind of take that as a uh, framework for analysis that uh we're look use the term richer. I, I in the book and most of the narrative about this is is in terms of GDP. So we're looking at the uh, gross domestic product, uh, sometimes in nominal terms, sometimes in real terms. That is inflation adjusted. But the the issue that you're positing, and you acknowledge in the book that both 
just CO2 emissions or just temperature is a single measure of the climate problem. And the same way GDP is a single measure of, call it prosperity, richer, uh, the economic activity. So we are t- we're making choices almost from the very beginning as yes. to how we are defining these problems. And as you say, GDP is a flawed thing. It was created, you don't go into the history of GDP, but I will for a client, it, it created in the 1930s to, to help uh, the Roosevelt administration uh, in a, an emergency deal with something. It's a very flawed uh, measure of economic activity, uh, but it, it exists to this day and, and it's, it's what we use. Same thing with CO2 emissions. They're not the entirety of the story of climate change, but they've become accepted as kind of the base. So we're, we're go- your book really goes with CO2 and temperature and GDP and measures the one against the other and forecasts the one against the other uh, through time. Is that a, a fair way of putting it? Yes, it is. Uh, and and just to, uh, because obviously there's a lot of people who feel GDP is very little related, certainly when you get up into higher GDP per capita. Uh, but I also show uh, in the book that actually, uh, you know, there's been other people trying to look at these many other formulations of what would be a better welfare measure for the world. Because obviously GDP, you know, it measures the ambulances that take us away from from uh, 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 from accidents and it measures the, uh, the uh, uh, theft along arms and police that Correct. we have and to put And hurricanes are good for GDP and, because you have to rebuild everything. So there's some real quirks all the, in it, all, to say the least. All, all these things. But it turns out that when you try to correlate how satisfied are you with life, which arguably could be said as to be one of the ultimate measures of, is this good for man? Uh, it actually correlates almost as, uh, it correlates better than five out of six of these uh, indices that have been tried to be made that try to be much more broad. What that tells us is, obviously, it's a flawed measure, but fundamentally, if you're going to have a conversation where we're not going to get bogged down in in just definition after definition, it is probably a pretty good in, uh, indicator of whether we die less, we're better educated, our kids don't die, we have more food, we have more of a lot of different things. And, and so, yeah, flawed probably an okay estimate. Okay estimate. So now we're forecasting the future. And for was mentioning this in the green room when we were chatting beforehand, uh, the, the, the climate community, the UN, NU, for all intents and purposes, have, have settled on, on uh, the year 2100, the 80 years from now, with various pit stops in 2050 to some extent 2030. But we're looking at over 80 years. The forecasting dilemma, I, I, you know, I am tasked with forecasting out the next three to five years including net benefits, cost benefits, that's challenging. 80 years uh, doing uh, uh, the analysis, both from an environmental perspective and the policy perspective, the GDP perspective, the prosperity perspective, that, that must have given you pause. It certainly gives me, as a reader, pause uh, in realizing how subjective this is when you're trying to forecast out 80 years. Did you, you know, how did you resolve that for yourself, that that is a the right way to frame this in terms of timelines. So again, I I simply take a lot of these things for given because this is a a book that tries to make an overall uh, an engaging argument that I think most people want to uh, uh, engage in. So it's you know it's a three or four hundred page book. It's not a three or four thousand page book. Uh, and, and and so you know the UN has set out a, 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 a five different scenarios of what will be the GDP growth uh, over this century. Uh, and I think one of the important things that many people don't quite recognize recognizes that the UN estimate that on all scenarios, the world will be much richer and reasonably likely a lot more richer and much more, uh, uh, much less unequal, uh, will be much better off in so many different ways. And the important bit is if that actually ends up not happening. So let's assume that GDP growth would be much, much less. The problem of global warming will also be much, much less because most of this is actually driven by the fact that most of humanity will become rich in the 21st century and hence emit a lot more CO2. Remember, it's not the US, Europe, uh, the rest of the rich world that will be emitting most of the CO2. It's all the newcomers, so China, but also India and Africa, that'll really be the main producers of CO2. So in some sense, it's baked into the issue we're only going to have a big problem with climate if we also get a situation where people will get very rich. Obviously, getting rich part is wonderful. Getting much CO2 is a problem. And so there's a, this, uh, uh, there's a, 
uh, attention in this, but fundamentally, you're not going to have much of a, of a global warming problem if you don't also have this GDP growth. So I think it's fair to say, let's go with the UN scenarios. Let's go with what most people assume as, as sort of the, uh, uh, the standard scenarios, because they actually uh, illuminate the most likely path. But absolutely, there, uh, there's no way this is telling you what is what is going to be in existence in 2100 that year, but it's going to tell you about the dynamic if we have a system that's both uh, uh, that's go both about getting richer and hence having more welfare, but also hence using more energy and unless we transition to green energy, we'll have more CO2. Okay, so you, you have both the, the combination within the UN and within the climate community of this, uh, what's perceived to be a trade-off and part of the climate community is sort of anti-growth at, at some sort of uh, future level, uh, uh, superficial level. But it is basically, in, in your presentation, a trade-off that growth comes with energy consumption, with carbon generation. Uh, your, I think, distinctive take on that is that the virtues of, and I'm not going to call it rich because that's kind of a, a loaded word, but the removal of an increasing percentage of the population from poverty into something other than poverty is part of the solution itself to mitigating climate change. Can you elaborate on that? It's not just growth for growth's sake. It's the, in, in your argument, uh, the consequences of uh, removing, again, large percentage of the population in India and Africa and China into a higher standard of living, from a lower standard of living to a higher standard of living, creates, in addition to the carbon, it actually creates positive opportunities for mitigating climate change. Can mm. you want to discuss that? Well, so this is really, uh, uh, it's, a, it's called the Schelling uh, uh, conjecture. Uh, it's one of the uh, Nobel economists that we work with, Thomas Schelling, uh, who's unfortunately dead now. Uh, but he already back in the 80s uh, talked about the idea of saying, look, climate change will produce problems. But if you lift people out of poverty, they will also have much more ability to tackle many of these problems. The obvious thing is, you know, if, if you live in, under corrugated roof and a hurricane comes in, you're likely to be vastly damaged in these, in these sort of slum cities. But if you are much better off and you built a, a house of, uh, of, of stone and, and, you know, better building construction materials, you're much more likely to actually stay put. Uh, the simple metaphor is if a hurricane hits Florida, uh, you know, lots of damage, but very few dead, whereas the same sort of hurricane hits Guatemala, uh, like Hurricane Mitch back in 1998, you get uh, tens of thousands of dead and you actually get an economy that's almost devastated for years. So being less poor also makes you a lot more resilient. Now, obviously that's great in many different respects that have nothing to do with climate. It simply means you can get your kids to uh, get them better school, you can get them better nutrition, you can stop them from dying and all these things. But it also actually turns out that for really poor people, it's probably even the best way to help with climate. Getting people out of poverty makes them a lot less vulnerable to climate than cutting tons of CO2, which will only help very slowly and in a hundred years. So, uh, uh, with that framework of the benefits of economic growth versus the uh, parallel rise in carbon and global warming, you come up with an idea, and again, which appeals to me as the finance person, um, an optimal front. In, in my business, it's called an efficient frontier, and I'm a, a big critic of the notion of an efficient frontier, and that's one uh -oh. of the reasons, again, I thought this was uh, <laughs> an interesting book. I think it's fantasy, but you you did say, listen. There are trade offs here. If you if you plot the trade offs between uh, reduction of carbon and its a presumed reduction of, of global temperatures against the costs of said efforts, you know some mitigation efforts are extremely expensive dollars that could be spent elsewhere. Some are cheap, uh, and you you come up with policy analyses, you and others, and you plot this. You came up with an optimal point, which I think is is a little hard for me to wrap my arms around with, but to describe your optimal point, a combination of, of uh, where you get the best mix of economic activity, allowing people to adapt, uh, uh, the, the most bang for the... Uh, for the lower carbon buck. And it's not, it's mm. more on the growth side, which is not surprising given your kind of your stance. It does involve carbon reduction and not exactly the full UN worst case scenario. 
but it's a little closer to the worst case scenario from a temperature perspective than, than mm. not perhaps I was expecting. But can you explain how you got to that point? Yes. So fundamentally, climate change, like any other issue, should at least have a sense of how much is it going to cost us to do climate policy and how much benefit is that going to derive us. Uh, and I can claim absolutely no uh, uh, sort of ownership to this because this is something that people have been doing for 30 years. It was started by a guy called William Nordhaus at Yale University back in the, uh, really in the 70s first, but it, it really got going in the 90s. Uh, he got the Nobel Prize in climate economics. He's the only climate economist to get that in uh, 2018. And I rely on a lot in my book on his models, uh, but these models are very similar uh, to at least a number of other of the most well-established established uh, models. There are also the models that went into, for instance, Obama's estimate of what's the cost of, uh, of emitting a ton of CO2, the so-called social cost of carbon. So these are, these are well-respected models. Basically, they say how much damage is going to happen as temperatures go up. So they try to estimate if temperatures go up one degree Fahrenheit, how much damage is that going to give? Two, three, four, all the way up to uh, 10 or 20 or something. And obviously, it gets less and less certain because we don't know. Uh, but we have good estimates of what will happen, what are the kinds of things that would happen, and they've tried to build a lot of models, and this is essentially an average of all those models. And, and this, again, this is where I have to chime in, I'm sorry, on discount rates, which sure. again, for new books and finance, uh, uh, regular audience, they will, they're reaching for their, their HP 12Cs at this point to ask about the discount rate. And we'll just have to agree to disagree that the... Um, when you're doing 80-year projections or even coming up with 50-year projections or 30-year projections, everyone knows that the slightest change in the discount rate of either the benefit or the, the detriment has a huge impact. That's just in the nature of the exercise. Uh, so supporters will highlight a particular of a particular approach, you know, lean the discount rate in their direction. Critics will lean the discount rate in another direction. There's, there's no way to resolve this on this podcast, so we'll just acknowledge it and move on. Yes. Uh, and, and I think the, the important part here is really to say, if you have, if you want to do a lot about climate, you basically want a low discount rate because then you say the future matters enormously compared to the present. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. You can uh, turn that around. Uh, Nordhaus argues for a market-based uh, 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 discount rate. So basically, if you deviate a lot from a market-based uh, 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 discount rate, as, for instance, uh, many climate uh, advocates would do, uh, his sort of counter-argument would be to say, well, then you could just invest that money in real terms and actually deliver a much, much greater uh, benefit in the in in the long run, or you know things that could help mm -hmm. pay for the problems that you get. But you're absolutely right. So so my my, my point was more to say so we construct this uh, uh, estimate of how much a global warming going to cost, uh, you know how much damage are we going to experience, and the answer from both Dice, which is the uh, Nordhaus model, but also from Fund and Page, which are the other uh, two. Uh, sort of most globally well-known and most uh, academically discussed models show about three to four percent cost uh, by 2100 in a sort of scenario of we don't do anything. So the impact of climate change by the end of the century, if we do nothing, is equivalent to making us feel like we are three to four percent less well-off than we otherwise would have been. So that and that, then that's sorry, a Going. Sorry, can Go I on. just because I, I, yep. I because it's a complicated argument. So that's one side of the point. Then the other side is how much is it going to cost you to cut carbon emissions? Now, obviously, cutting a little bit turns out to be fairly simple. We know that you know you can reasonably cut five, ten, fifteen percent at very low cost if you do it smartly. Unfortunately, politicians often don't do that. But if you do it smartly, basically with one carbon tax or a cap and trade system that's very effective, that is well regulated, you can cut this very, very easily. You know, had we done that, for instance, in Europe, most of that would have come from simply switching from coal to gas. Very cheap. Very simple to do, but also there's lots of inefficiencies in any system, especially when you don't price carbon. So if you start pricing it, you can cut it cheaply. If you want to cut a lot more, and obviously if you want to go to net zero, as many people are now starting to talk about, that is a very different thing. You're basically talking about re-engineering the engine of growth that has been driving, you know, at least the last 200 years. You know, clearly the industrial revolution was based on 
coal and then later on oil and gas. And we know that there is a very strong bi-directional connection between uh, uh, the amount of, uh, and cheapness of energy and growth. So if you try to reduce uh, the, the emissions of CO2, which typically means you have to get less reliable or less uh, efficient and often costlier uh, energy in, you will have a cost. Now, this is not going to take you to the poorhouse. So this is not the, you know, the Republican sort of, oh, it's the end of the world kind of thing, but it has real costs. Uh, just to give you one data point, uh, uh, the New Zealand government is the only government actually that have promised to go net carbon zero by 2050. Uh, and they have actually asked for an independent review of how much is that going to cost. Their official estimate indicate that it's going to cost them 16% of GDP by 2050. So you get a sense of, yes, there is a problem here. You know, the 3% by 3 to 4% by the end of the century with global warming. If you cut a little bit, you can actually cut the most damaging uh, scenarios. I'm just, this is obviously, you, you need to do this in a actual spreadsheet or something, but I'm just giving you a sense. So if it was 4%, maybe you can cut it down to 3%. That's great. You've just cut a percent of the damage cost by 2100. If you did that for half a percent GDP loss, you're, you're well off. That's a great idea. But if you cut, say, 2% with an expenditure of 16%. And again, I'm just making, you know, uh, uh, hand movements here because you'd actually need to look at the 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 sure, the, understood. the, the numbers. Yeah. Then clearly you have made a bad deal. You've cut uh, you've paid up 16%, but you've only cut the damages by 2%. The point here is like uh, any economist would end up saying there is an equilibrium. There is a place where you have the minimum cost and cost to from climate change. You have to remember we need to pay both. We both need to pay the damage that will come from global warming. We need to pay the damage that will come from global warming policies. It's about minimizing the sum of those two. That's what Nordhaus has done. That's what I uh, point out in the book. Many other models will give about the same, but I've just used Nordhaus because he he got the Nobel Prize and you know, he's certainly uh, the mainstream and it gives very much the same outcomes. What he says is if you cut temperatures by about 0 0.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So down to three point from, uh, where, they sorry, down be, from where they would from be given they, the current trajectory. Yes. So, so uh, for, down from uh, uh, 7.4 degrees Fahrenheit down to 6.75 degrees Fahrenheit, you have done the optimal outcome. You have reduced damages over the centuries by 0.8% of GDP at an extra cost of 0.4%. If you do more, you're actually going to end up with a lower net benefit. If you do less, you're also going to end up with lower benefits. So the point is, do something, don't do everything. So this, however, is where I think we're, we're, we get into some aha moments because <laughs> if the economists are forecasting that the optimal outcome from an economic perspective and planetary perspective is a six or seven degree uh, warming over the next 80 years, a number of people, I think most of the listeners are going to say, that's, that's just crazy. That's crazy. We're going to bake, <laughs> that's crazy. We're going to bake the planet. We're, um, we are, you know, it's, it's just breathtaking to think that that would be a considered a reasonable, uh, conclusion. Yet I understand the economists again, with their efficient frontiers or the, my term, not yours, uh, have come to that, but that, that really does beg for a reality check. Um, hmm. the one specific thing now you do try to address to your credit, you know, you address the implications of the changes in standards of living and then you know, how life would be lived on a planet that's that much warmer. The one thing I don't believe, and I, I'll just ask you, cause I didn't really see it as stuff is, um, taking into account potential tipping points that can't really be forecast as easily, you know, extra methane coming up as a result of the warming temperature, which is not uh, mm. a clear part of the picture other other uh other you know the worsening of the storms and so forth despite the bullseye effect which is a point that you make repeatedly in the book um you know the storms aren't necessarily worsening it's just more people live on the coast and therefore more exposed mm. that's a summary of the bullseye effect but six degrees warmer six to seven degrees warmer uh you know says wow this is not a good solution yep. yeah uh, so, in, in some sort of intuitive sense yeah. how, how do you respond to that so Daniel, obviously that's what I, uh, I I spend quite a bit of the book on trying to explain why this is very different from what you hear. And this goes to the whole alarmism point. Uh, 
Because right now, every day, you hear all these terrible things that are going to happen by 2100 or even before because of global warming. And clearly you think, oh my God, we don't want all those bad things to happen. But the problem with most of those arguments are that they're based on models that at best have some very dubious assumptions built into them. And let me just give you one example. Uh, so for instance, sea level rise, uh, which is you know one of the most well-known, and you know, if you think think about sort of illustration of global warming, you'll see uh, the uh, Lady Liberty being flooded or you know the Louvre or, or the Eiffel Tower being flooded or something. It's a very, very powerful metaphor and has a sense of, oh my God, this is really going to screw us all. What the problem with those arguments are, so you know, one famous study uh, last year, and it got headlines from Washington, Post and across the country and really across the world was that 187 million people are going to get have to move and you know in some of the more spectacular news reporting it was they're going to drown. Uh, 187 million people will have to move if you don't look for adapt adaptation. If you assume that everybody is just going to sit where they live for the next 80 years and do nothing. But if you look at what people actually do, and there's been lots of models done with this, and there's one study that I reference uh, that have used uh, three different models for uh, for sea level rise and, and uh, eight different kinds of, of uh, uh, economic uh, 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 development and five different ways of, of adaptation. They find for all of these models, you will get dramatically lower impacts because most of this will be mitigated away. We'll simply be building... Uh, uh, you know, uh, levees, uh, will nourish the beaches, will do a lot of other things that are incredibly cheap on an 80-year perspective. So just to give you a sense of proportion, what the actual study found was that if you allow people to adapt at very low cost, much less than 0.1% of GDP, you will, instead of seeing 187 million people being flooded, you will see 305,000 people being flooded. And that's important because what that means is you have a problem that you're being told is the end of the world kind of thing. But the reality is it's a very, very small problem. And that, again, you're even, I, I just have to say that again, I think most readers will say that the nature of whether it's the flooding, whether it's the uh, vegetation changes, whether it's the basic temperature, that that, is at the far end of a quote manageable problem unless we're all moving to Canada and Siberia. I mean, it seems like a uh, you know the planet has been cooler, the planet has been warmer, but the planet with this many billions of people has not been dramatically cooler or dramatically warmer. And it's it's I get the point, and you know you make it very eloquently in the book about various types of adaptation that's available. But it really uh, getting uh, a population of this large to adapt to that extent is it's, it's a big ask. You know? And I mean, uh, obviously, you're aware that it's a big ask, but it is a very big ask. And, and, and Daniel, this is where I think we need to get a sense of proportion again. Uh, so you mentioned the storms, which is another very, very big indicator. Uh, and and what the the best studies show, uh, the UN actually doesn't expect we're going to see more uh, hurricanes, but we will probably see fiercer hurricanes, and that's much more important. We'll probably see fewer, but more fierce hurricanes. Overall, that means more damage because fiercer uh, go to the cube, whereas more just goes linearly. So that is a problem. But at the same time, because we will get richer, we will actually be much better able to prevent. A large scale damage. So, you know, fundamentally will be much more like Florida and much less like Guatemala. That matters because when you look at the total cost, so right now hurricanes cost about 0.04% of GDP. If we did, if we, there was no global warming, they estimate because we'd be much richer by the end of the century, that damage cost would be down to 0.01% of GDP. So that's a great decline simply because we get more resilient. Because of global warming, that will double. So it'll go up to 0.02%. But I think there's two points to be taken from this. It'll actually be less damaging in relative terms in 2100, even with more fierce hurricanes than it is today. And secondly, of course, the biggest challenge that we have from extreme weather is still 0.02% of GDP. It gives you a sense of proportion. Yes, global warming is a problem, but it's not this all 
all-eating uh, dimension of sense that we that we get from a lot of the media, and I, I think your gut feeling and the and the gut feeling that you're ascribing all your listeners to as well is is not, probably not well uh, well uh, uh, what is that uh, uh, calibrate it uh, if you don't know these numbers, and if you do know these numbers, I think it's a lot harder to believe this is the kind of thing that will end civilization. That's exactly why the economists find this is a three or 4% problem, not a 50 or hundred percent problem, which I think a lot of people sort of in their minds believe it is. Well, I, I let's, let's move on to the next stage, but I, I footnote that, uh, three or 4% problem, assuming certain discount rates, assuming certain, sure. uh, um, well, sorry, the, uh, tipping, the 4%, tipping points that don't, yes. that, tipping points that the, don't, uh, show up as opposed to do show up. Yes. The, the 4% is actually 4% of the GDP in 2100. So that's in, independent of, 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 of uh, discount rate, but you're absolutely right. So, sorry, just a very quick one on, on tipping points. You're right that if there is a tipping point out there that lurks, that could basically eradicate world or make it dramatically much worse. And by doing climate policies, we could avoid that. That would definitely change the cost benefit analysis. Now, we don't know these tipping points. They, you know, we can vaguely sort of uh, point to them and say this could be a problem. But that's true, of course, with anything that we do, with any investment that we do. You know, basically think about all the other things that we're also fairly relaxed about. The fact that uh, uh, HIV/AIDS has been ravaging Africa for uh, decades, and you could very easily make up a scenario where you say if we don't tackle HIV/AIDS in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's going to leave the port open for one or more failed states, throw in some bio, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, bioterrorism, and you've got the perfect outcome for, you know, uh, the end of the world by 2100. Not a certainty, but certainly a non-zero probability, just like the, uh, the tipping points that we're talking about in climate. Th these tipping points, I would argue, are almost everywhere. And we decide to not take them very seriously. In climate, we have actually taken them seriously. So Nordhaus again did a study in 2019 uh, on uh, the melting of the Greenland uh, uh, ice sheet, which would rise uh, sea levels about 20 feet. So a huge uh, impact. What he found was that even the most dramatic models will add very, very little damage by 2100. And even in the year 3000, it'll still be a fairly small, it'll not be a zero impact, but it'll be a fairly small impact simply because we are very good at dealing with this, even at very, very high levels. But obviously the point is even in 23, uh, sorry, in 3000, I'm not used to saying 3000, the year 3000, it'll be a smaller part of the impact of what we're actually going to see. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, we frame this and, uh, I, I'm going to choose to disagree in terms of the conclusion, but I, it is important to acknowledge the utility of, of what you've done of a cost-benefit analysis of, of any major policy. And indeed, a good portion of the book deals with the fact that, uh, or the front of the book, uh, you know, uh, highlights that there is a lot of alarm and uh, it's there's room for uh, detailed analysis. People are disagreeing on the detailed analysis, but at least there is detailed analysis and, and, and that's mm. fine. I want to shift to an area where sort of some sort of agreement, and I, I'm, I'm kind of pleased to see agreement. It appears to be the case, and we're shifting from 2100 and discount rates and, and GDP forecasts and temperature ranges and whether it's livable or not at six, uh, six degrees warmer at that point, to uh, policies and uh, next steps over the next couple years. Last 30 years has been, from a policy perspective, largely unsuccessful. Uh, every couple of years, there's an agreement, uh, a meeting of, of global leaders. Everyone agrees to reduce their carbon emissions, and it really, really doesn't happen. There are cap-and-trade systems in, in the northeastern United States and in continental Europe. Uh, but there appears to be one area of uh, almost universal agreement, which is a carbon tax. Uh, left, right, university, even, I don't know if it's the University of Chicago, that's probably is asking too much, but um, <laughs> you're in support of a, a carbon tax. Yes. Uh, certainly other parties are in support. There's a reasonable agreement. And, and uh, there's also agreement that the original level of the carbon tax was set way too low, even by, I think you would acknowledge that. And uh, so we need uh, a carbon tax uh, internationally applied. That's the tricky bit. Can't be any leakage and at a higher level than the current market price of carbon. Uh, I take it, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that's in identifying the good 
easy, straightforward, efficient initiatives that we can take, that a carbon tax is one of the straightest and best ways to get to that. Is that a fair summary? So it's it's the first one that I say of, of the five things that I think will help solve global warming. Uh, I actually think... So, I'm absolutely for a carbon tax, but I also point out that it's going to do a lot less good than I think most people believe. It's going to you know, cut some of the highest temperatures, which is great, but it's not actually going to be all that challenging. Uh, so even if it, if it actually manages to cut about half of all our emissions by the end of the century, uh, because there's a huge sort of inertia in the, in the climate system, it'll only cut our temperature about uh, a little less than one degree Fahrenheit by the end of the century. So even an incredibly successful carbon tax that is globally adhered to and rationally uh, uh, adjusted upwards every year will not solve all of global warming. It's all a little bit of Lo- low hanging think, fruit. Low hanging yes, fruit. But but yes, but I think there's also an important point to be made that if we don't get this right, so I think the U.S. is a as a I don't know, horror example, but it's certainly an example of how not to get it right, that pitching a carbon tax very heavily may very well end up making all the other smart things that you can do much, much harder simply because you end in a political stalemate. Uh, So, uh, and, and, and what the EU is doing right now is basically saying, all right, as you pointed out, it'd be much, much nicer if everyone has the same carbon tax. Remember the EU doesn't have that. Certainly no individual nation in the EU only has one carbon tax. Typically, most nations have about 30 different carbon taxes and many, many, many more. Uh, and, and that, of course, really means that you have lots of leakage both inside your economy and certainly outside. But what the EU is now talking about is setting up border posts where you basically have to pay the carbon tax when you uh, export into the EU. In theory, that makes good sense. But of course, in reality, you have to remember it's very likely that, you know, if a competitor sells cheese too cheaply, uh, the French might object and say, surely there's more implicit methane emissions in in this product. And of course, I'm again, just kidding with the French. But the point here is that it will be used as a way to stall free trade. And so it could very easily end up being a place where we generate a little bit of benefit, but actually decrease the enormous benefit that we get from free trade a lot more. So again, I'm saying by all means, good carbon tax could be very good, but let's not believe that this is the main thing that will fix global warming. So if you'll allow me, I'm reaching for my other point. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm just reaching for straws for any point of agreement and, uh, carbon tax. I'm sure we, we, don't we agree? So, so my main point is really that we need to dramatically increase investment in green energy R and D. So correct, uh, and, you know, and much uh, of the book, for readers, much of the book is uh, uh, on, or a significant portion of the book is advocating uh, dollars spent on R and D for green green energy as a higher return on investment than some of the potent, the current policy dollars being spent. Yes. So, so we did uh, back in two thousand nine. If you remember, uh, we actually had the globe met in Copenhagen at the end of two thousand nine. We were supposed to fix global warming. Of course, that ended terribly. Uh, but, but uh, in the lead up to that meeting, uh, we assembled twenty seven of the world's top climate economists, three Nobel laureates, to look at a wide range of areas of saying where can you actually spend a dollar and do the most good for climate. And what they found was that the long-term best investment is in dramatically increasing investment in green energy R&D. Why? Because as we've seen in the past, the best ways to fix problems generally for the world is not to try to tell everybody, I'm sorry, could you do with a little less? Could you turn down you know, your consumption of the stuff that we don't like? That rarely really gets people excited. And that's, of course, what a carbon tax tries to do. What does help make people really excited is to simply find a better technology that will allow them cheaper to do many of the uh, same things that they like to do, but without the nasty side effects. So a good example, you know, in Los Angeles in the 1950s, terribly polluted. Uh, most of that pollution came from cars. And one obvious way to say, uh, to, to fix that was to say, tell people, I'm sorry, you can't drive or you can't drive very much. That would have solved the problem. It would probably also have been impossible. What did solve much of the problem was an innovation, the catalytic converter. So in 1974, we find out this, you know, this 
thingy can actually dramatically reduce air pollution so you can drive and not get much of the problem. So the idea here is if we can innovate the price of green energy, and that could really be anything. It could be solar and wind with uh, with storage. It could be uh, fusion. It could be fission. It could be uh, you know, water splitting, a lot of other ideas. If we could come up with one or a few technologies that would be cheaper than fossil fuel, everyone would switch. So let's dramatically increase investment in green energy R&D. We're suggesting we should be spending six times as much as what the world is today. So instead of 15 billion, it should be about a hundred billion dollars. But the point is, we should be spending a lot more. And unfortunately, because we're so worried, because we're so focused on you know putting up the next uh, solar uh, uh, park or the windmill park to make us feel like we're doing something, we forget to actually invest. So despite the fact that Obama and many others got together and promised back in 2015 that they would double the amount of investment in green energy R&D, we're nowhere near that. We're probably at the same level today. What the, just a, as a... Most people view solar and uh, and wind as, as as contributions. And as a business person watching the cycle of an industry, it, it's pretty well known that at the beginning of any industry, it's kind of money losing, and the returns are not what you would expect. You got to work the kinks out. You got the technology needs to be improved. The scale needs to be improved. I, I think I was a little taken aback in your book that the degree to which you are uh, in dis- pro investment in green energy, but pretty critical of um, of wind and solar. And again, I acknowledge the criticism backward looking, but to me, they, you know, they're getting better at pretty much every, hmm. with every iteration. Uh, why wouldn't they be a significant, uh, and I, I, we understand most of the people, listeners understand between base load and, and, and peak load and, you know, that the wind may not blow in the evenings or the sun doesn't shine in the evenings, uh, that type of thing, but that why wouldn't they be a, a significant portion of the solution along with, uh, your, I wouldn't call him your colleague, but a peer, Michael Schellenberger, who's, you know, a big advocate of the return of nuclear. And there's a community in favor of that community against that. But Mm. why not, why wouldn't green R and D include all of the above? So green energy would, green energy R and D would certainly include solar and wind and especially I think storage, uh, because the real problem with, uh, solar and wind, as you pointed out, is that, that right now it's very hard to see it doing anything, but you know, basically hollowing out, uh, most of the existing investments in, in, uh, in coal and natural gas, uh, which of course is great for, for wind and solar. And it probably also saves us money overall because it's actually better for the environment, uh, not climate change, but mostly because it, uh, it pollutes less with, uh, uh, uh small particulates, but the problem is you can't power most of the world, most of the world's places with renewables right now. Certainly not without much, much better storage. And if you include the cost of storage, you have a much different proposition. And so in some ways you could say the the issue with fixing global warming is really just one of the current solutions are just not cost effective. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, right now the world gets about 1% of its energy from solar and wind, uh, by 2040, the international energy agency estimate will get about 4%, a little more than 4% of our energy. Uh, this is not what's going to solve global warming in the next 20 years. Now it may very well be if we can dramatically reduce the cost of, uh, storage that we could see this go up to say six or maybe even 10%, still not the solution that we're looking for in the short and medium term, but it could very well be in, you know, in, in, in 60 years or so that it'll be able to take over most. Likewise with, uh, uh, the, with, uh, uh, fission or nuclear power, as you mentioned, Schellenberger is very, uh, eager to, uh, to promote. The problem is simply right now, new, uh, fission, uh, uh, uh power plants cost fantastically much. Uh, and and that's why you know we should be investing a lot more in research and development in the fourth generation nuclear power, which you know Bill Gates and many others are investing in. They're c- telling us this could be incredibly cheap and incredibly safe, and I would love that to be the case. Uh, my only reservation is that's also what they told us about the other three generations. So so the <laughs> idea is not to say 
we want to get these technologies and i'm totally technology uh, uh, agnostic i don't i don't have any game in in, in this I, I don't have any shares in any of them uh, but the, but the basic point is we need to get them to be there where you want to do it without subsidies and that you can also envision to do it more than just simply hollowing out the the existing infrastructure of coal and, and gas, which of course can be good in the short term, but which does not actually allow you uh, uh, to to run your, your uh, power uh, system in the long run, where you get to the kinds of things that, uh, that the UK is now experiencing that you would basically have to pay people billions of pounds to make backup power so that you have something that'll back up for your for your uh, for your green green energy that's not uh, sustainable and it's certainly not something that you can sell to china india and and, and uh, uh, africa but clearly and i also mentioned that if you can get storage to be much cheaper for instance india instead of keeping increasing the number of coal fired power plants will actually start decreasing them but this is not going to solve global warming in any real part, you know, we're still talking about getting to 5% or maybe even 10 or 15% with solar and wind uh, by 2040. This is only going to solve the problem once we get to a point where it's just blatantly cheaper, where people will want to pick it up rather than have to be forced through, you know, uh, uh, policies. And, you know, say want to pick it up, uh, uh, want to make these changes uh, on economic reasons. I think one of, you know, the issues that is striking in in this debate is, and again, I'll reference the University of Chicago again, is you're, you're uh, framing this in economic terms. Uh, and then I, uh, I and others are pointing back in behavioral science terms, not the, uh, you know, not the classical uh, liberal uh, market in, uh, environment, but how people behave and how they perceive. And, you know, you, the title of the book, False Alarm and, and the Panic, you know, there may be an economic prescription. It's kind of dry. Uh, your case, it's it's, oh, it's uh, dry. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of dry. It's uh, it's uh, some unspecified that is unspecific uh, adaptation, uh, low hanging fruit, a reasonable carbon tax enforcement, uh, adaptation, adaptation, adaptation. That works really well um, in an academic setting. I think you know part of the challenge is that human beings are subject to alarm and can sense, see the planet warming and the the challenges faced with that. You know, solar may not be the most efficient uh, approach, but uh, you know people feel better when they see a, 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 mm. a you know a, a windmill. And yeah. I, again, I realize that's not the best way to analyze or promote public policy, but it, it needs to be taken into account to some extent. That you, your book is trying to address. For better, for worse, and again, there are a lot of people on the other side of your argument, as you well know. Uh, uh, you know the the perception of this, not just the the reality of it. Yeah. So, so I mean, I think there's two points to this. One is uh, there's no doubt that there's a lot of people who feel very proud of the fact that they have more solar power, or wind power, and it makes them feel like they've really made a difference. Uh, and, and, and they're my sense is simply, look, future generations are not going to you know, judge us for how well we felt about stuff. They're going to you know, judge us on how well we actually fixed problems. And my point is twofold, partly that most of the policies that we do right now on climate cost quite a lot. So I try to estimate, for instance, the cost of the Paris Agreement at one to two trillion dollars a year, yet the benefit is almost immeasurable even in a hundred years. So we are doing very little in climate at very high cost. And we are also neglecting a lot of other problems. You know, COVID is the obvious one, uh, but also the fact that the big world's biggest infectious disease, tuberculosis, you could do something about that so cheaply, so effectively. And yet we seem to be fine with the fact that 1.5 million people die each year from easily curable infectious diseases like tuberculosis. So my point here is to say we should not allow ourselves to be judged on how good we feel. We should allow ourselves to be judged on how smart we actually do stuff. And in order to get there, I think we need to address the alarmism because absolutely, if everybody feels like this is a meteor hurtling towards earth, you should drop everything else and just focus on that, right? That's the only thing that we should be focusing on. I've had people tell me, look, there'll still be poor people in 2030. We'll fix that when we get there. Right now, our main point is to fix global warming. And I think that's, you know, if if you think it's the meteor, if you think this is the end of the world, that's an obvious and rational argument, and it's entirely wrong. 
this is a long-term problem, not the end of the world. It's, you know, three or 4% of GDP towards the end of the century. So it's perhaps more correctly, you know, metaphored as a metaphor as diabetes. You know, it's a problem that we have to learn to live with. It's not something you can wish away. It's not something you can totally avoid. It's something that you need to treat. You should certainly treat it, leaving it untreated is a really bad idea, but you also got to stop believing this is the only thing you need to do and certainly making everything about your diabetes. You need to treat it. You need to do it smartly. And then you need to get on with your life and actually do all the other things that will ultimately end up mattering much, much more. And that gets back to the whole uh, ESG conversation that you talk about, where we, you know, we went through uh, with, uh, with 50 teams of researchers and uh, several Nobel laureates to look at where can we actually do the best ESG uh, for the sustainable development goals. And we found there are some of these goals that are fantastic, and there are some of them that are not very good. And unfortunately, even the best of the climate goals are sort of towards the lower end of all the things you can do in the world. But certainly many of the things that we do right now, like the Paris Agreement and many other things, are incredibly poor ways of helping the world. So spending lots of resources, doing very little. I would like us to do a little better than that. Well, let's let's uh, let's summarize that uh, again, that, you know, the, the path forward and agreement that there needs to be a path forward is uh, a, a, a policy kind of, of aggressive adaptation, uh, allocation of money to uh, green research, uh, green energy research, a, a carbon tax of some sort, uh, and uh, then uh, and then go forward. It is a again a, a not it is an a, a approach not without controversy, and I encourage uh, readers to to uh, read the book. It is False Alarm. How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet, planet by Bjorn Lomberg. And also, to there, there are uh, reviews out there, positive and negative. Uh, it is part of the debate. I think even those who come to the conclusion that they disagree with the author will absolutely want to understand a framework of cost-benefit analysis applied to this issue, even if they are going to disagree on the inputs. Uh, that framework of a cost-benefit analysis is, is absolutely critical. Bjorn, thank you so much uh, uh, for being on the show. I'm, I'm uh, grateful that you appeared. Daniel, it was my pleasure. Thank you.